So all year we've been engaged in a project on learning more about our faith. And um, this series of conversations we've been having all year, we started way back in September on tough questions. And have we covered some interesting questions for you? Yes. Has it, have you found this useful? Do you feel like your faith is growing? Um, and when I ask you, do you feel like your faith is growing, what I'm not asking you is, do you feel like your knowledge is growing? Uh, <laughs> right? I, I want to help you um, think about how you can begin to share these concepts with people in your oikos. And so uh, everything we've tried to do this year is to help bolster our own faith, but also begin to help build some more courage in our souls to be able to share our faith with others uh, in our oikos. So what you don't know is that all year, some of the topics that I've chosen have been strategic to get us to this conversation. Some of the groundwork that I've been laying all along since September is to help equip us with this. Otherwise, this question would have taken us like eight weeks, and it just would have been a long time. So we will be drawing on many former concepts that we've already covered in the class and then building on those things. And what we really want to begin to think about is responding to, I think, arguably, one of the biggest questions in our culture, and that is questions surrounding uh, LGBT, the LGBT community. And this is a growing conversation. And I am going to specifically focus our time together on this uh, aspect of the question is, what do I say when someone in my oikos, someone that I know, someone I am friends with or related to, says that they are gay or that they have been influenced by pro-gay thinking? What I'm not going to be covering in this series is the politics. So if you have issues about politics, that's interesting, but that's not what this is going to be about. This is going to be a series of conversations where we're going to be focusing on equipping so that you can have some things to say, you can think through some issues that maybe you haven't thought through before to know how to answer this when it comes up in your conversations with people in your oikos, okay? So, and what I'm going to invite you to do today as we kick this uh, short series off is I'm going to invite you to assume that somebody in this room struggles with same-sex attraction. And I'm going to invite you to consider your comments in light of that that if somebody was in this room right now who had a history of same-sex attraction or struggled with same-sex attraction, what would you say? And what would you not say? What would you refrain from saying? Because do you know that like every thought that pops into your head, everything that you're invited to say in your life, you don't actually have to say? You know? <laughs> so when we ha whenever we have conversations, uh, do you, have you ever noticed this, that you know, there's at least two people in a conversation, and you're having a conversation with each other. This person's talking, and this person's talking. But then there's this whole other level of a conversation where you're thinking your own thoughts over here about the conversation, and you're thinking of what you're going to say next, why the other person's wrong, how, what evidence you're going to put forward to show the other person that they're wrong. That their, that their point of view is inadequate, right? So you have this whole other conversation. And meanwhile, this person's having their own conversation in their head, right? Mm -hmm. And these often will in, influence and impact your thoughts and then what you say. But some of this stuff is assumptions and unshared. It's not shared. You don't, you don't always know. It's, it's assumptions that you assume, well, this is what they mean by that. This is what this looks like. And then often there's this whole other level of conversation that's happening kind of in what we call in philosophy in the meta-narrative of what this conversation means. This person's rejecting me. This person is not listening to me. There's a lot happening when you have a conversation. It's, it's not just this. 
And so what I'm inviting you to do today is to become more aware of what's happening up here in your thought life and to begin to notice how some of you are going to have thoughts and reactions and feelings and judgments about this conversation. But I'm going to also invite you to think about your words, as it says in scripture, because somebody in this room today might struggle with same-sex attraction. And your comments, your jokes, your sarcasm, your cutting remarks that to you might be nothing, might to that person be deeply personal. And I'm using this as a practice for yourself to begin to notice what your own thoughts are. Not just what you're saying, but what's happening up here in your thought life. And I just want you to practice a skill that we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about judging is I want you to practice noticing. Noticing yourself and noticing what some of your thoughts, beliefs, and opinions and feelings are. Now we're going to um, have a moment where we are going to imagine a scenario where someone in your oikos is talking to you and giving you a very difficult revelation about themselves and their struggle with same-sex attraction. And so we're going to play a short uh, audio clip and I'm going to actually turn off the video part because I don't want anything you see to distract you from what you're hearing. And I want you to focus on what's being said, but at the same time noticing your own thoughts and what's coming up for you, all right? So we're gonna play this clip. This is a real clip that I got off YouTube of a young man, and he's giving a very difficult revelation to his oikos. I'm very nervous, excited, and scared for this huge step in my life. I am a Christian, and I am gay. <laughs> Just hearing those words and knowing that all of you are going to hear it is so liberating. I know that many of you already knew this, assumed this, or maybe it actually is breaking news to you. But for my entire life, I have struggled to come to terms with who I am and who God made me to be. It took me a really long time and many, many years of purposeful neglect and denial to get to the place where I am today and to really desire to dig into the theology regarding this issue. Theology that I had never even questioned growing up, whether it was true or whether it was false or whether the Bible really condemned homosexuality. Um, but I am just so thankful for the peace that God has provided me over this issue because I know that it's something that can absolutely eat away at people until they are so angry at the church that they just want nothing to do with it. So here's what I believe to be true. My sexuality is a gift from God. It is part of how he specifically designed me, and it's not something that I am supposed to renounce. It's actually a crucial part of my testimony, and it's something that I can use, not just to help other people in my situation find freedom, but to help continue this conversation about LGBT inclusion in the church. Now, I know that there is a lot to unpack in those statements, and believe me, I still don't really know what that means specifically for my life, but I know that this is something that I need to do. I need to add my voice to the dialogue. So many of my friends and family see the LGBT community as a them, but now you know someone that belongs to that group someone that you love and care about, someone that you call a friend, or a brother, or a son. Now, part of the reason that it's taken me so long to actually come out and say this is because I have been terrified that I would be completely rejected. It's about me being brave and bold 
to fully be the man that God created me to be. My struggle to come to terms with who God designed me to be has been the center point of my entire life for the last 10 years, and it has caused me so much anxiety and inner turmoil, and it's something that I was not ready to talk about until now. This is my story, and I can't let this incredibly crucial part of what God has done in my life cripple me anymore. I am made in the image of my Creator, and yes, I am a fragile, sinful, and broken human being. But my sexuality is not what makes me broken, sinful, or fragile. First of all, this is, this is what was said, right? So this is the conversation part of it. So what was happening for you in your thoughts? What were some of the thoughts, feelings, opinions, judgments? What were you kind of noticing in yourself? Yeah, Melinda. So one thing was it won't be settled. It won't be settled here on earth. Okay. So the, now do you, do you know, Melinda, that that's, that's an assumption? That's an assumption. Okay, tell me some, an, another thought strain that you had. I just need to love him. Okay. Um, now, some possible assumptions in those statements is that um, some big assumptions in these statements, Melinda, is that you and him have the same definition of love and what love looks like. That's a big assumption that you're both making. All right. What else? What other uh, things are you noticing? Probably won't change his mind. Oh, that's a good one. Thank you, Laura. Um, Melinda, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Do you believe the Holy Spirit can change minds? Okay. So I want to caution you that this, this statement is very naturalistic in its perspective. You might not change his mind, but let's allow some room for God might want to use me to change his mind. Okay. So what I'm trying, I'm not, I'm doing this only on you because I know you're strong enough to, to take it, but <laughs> this is, these are all assumptions that we have in our little thought bubble and that we think are truth because we think them. And we do this all the time. You ever have a fight with your spouse? This is what's happening. Just so you know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this is a very useful thing that my husband and I learned in a, a transformational training that we went through about four years ago together. And it's a very helpful concept because when we talk to each other now, we say, well, here's what I'm saying. And then I'm having this other judgment over here in my thoughts. I'm making this assumption. And it helps to give words to it sometimes. But these are all assumptions that you're making. So it's good to have some neutrality about your assumptions and try, you did a really good job of trying to stay neutral in what he was saying. You, you noticed yourself getting distracted because he said something like, oh, I don't agree with that. But then you tried to push through it and like, okay, I want to keep listening. I want to be a generous listener. Okay, good. So for you, what you're noticing in your thoughts is, oh, he's justifying his sin. You could kind of identify that. You, I do that too. Now, these are all conversations that we have in our minds, okay? We could go around the room and we could all have a separate conversation, but I want you to just to notice what's happening and to notice the difference between what's being said and the assumptions that we sometimes have about what's being said or the conclusions or the feelings or the impulses to respond, okay? So part of being a good listener as we grow in our soul is learning how to listen more and react in the moment less. That doesn't mean that we have no opinion about it or that we don't talk about it later. It's just we want to be less reactive in that moment with that person because uh, this is, again, the whole context of this conversation is people in my oikos. If you want them to stay in your oikos, then you want to have some ways of, of listening to them, okay? Okay, so a question you have is, is he sexually active? He never actually said that he was. 
I think that there is a very real sense in which we have a tendency as evangelicals to think about people in the LGBT community as more as politics, their political positions, how we may, may disagree with their political positions. We disagree how they talk in the news. We don't like it that they're super confrontational a lot of the times. And our tendency, I think, is to think of these primarily, these people, as uh, a political grouping. And what I'm hoping through this series is you'll maybe make a little bit of a shift that maybe that won't be your first thought anymore. That maybe your first thought could be a question of uh, these are people that need more of Jesus, and so do I. And that these, this could be a conversation that will, instead of having, you know, kind of this visceral gut reaction, uh, often what I hear from people is something along the lines of my first reaction to them is they're vile. I don't like them. I don't agree with them. I find them deviant and perverted, and I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I think that there is a sense in which people in the LGBT community have become kind of the modern equivalent of lepers or Samaritans. They are, for many evangelicals, social outcasts. We don't know what to do with them. We don't have a ministry at this church for what to do with people from the LGBT community because we don't know what to do with them many times. How do we help them? We have ministries for people with addictions. We have ministries for, for victims of sexual abuse. But if somebody comes and they, they want to explore, what does Jesus think about me? Is it a sin to be gay? How do we direct those people in ministry? How do we talk to them? Our tendency is to want to lead with a conversation about their sin. And we don't do that in many other areas. Our focus here, as I said, is the purpose is how to respond and minister to people in our 8 to 15 who self-identify as LGBT. So that's the, the overall context of these conversations. Does God hate me because I'm LGBT? This is a question that many people who grow up in the church and who struggle with same-sex attraction, this is the lingering, nagging question they have in their mind. Because they've sat through church, they've sat through classes, they've heard Christians make jokes about these problems, and they don't understand, why do I still struggle with this? I'm born again, I have the Holy Spirit, I read my Bible, but I am same-sex attracted. What is wrong with me? Does God hate me? And this is a very real struggle for many people because we inadvertently, I think, sometimes through our words and, and uh, that we inadvertently communicate that somehow these people, maybe God just isn't, doesn't maybe love them as much as he loves the rest of us. And I think that um, it's very important for us to start off by getting our kind of our thinking straight that Jesus loves LGBT people just as much as he loves you and me. He doesn't love straight people more than he loves gay people. And he doesn't even love, he doesn't love gay people more after they stop engaging in gay sex. Because each and every one of us, if we were to go around the room today and we were really to have a moment of honesty, we could all talk about the sin in our life that we still struggle with to this day. And we don't believe for a minute that God will love us more when I stop struggling with this sin. Rather, God's love is part of the transformational power of the Holy Spirit that makes me want to put the flesh to death more today than I did yesterday. And it is no different for the person who struggles with same-sex attraction. So anything that we do that communicates that 
Well, as soon as you get yourself cleaned up and you stop sinning, God's going to love you more. He's going to be more pleased or that I will be more pleased with you. We will have a better relationship when you stop sinning. We can talk about the love of God once you're different. And do we subtly communicate our disdain for them in our attitudes and in our actions? Now, we all know that Jesus loves sinners, right? <laughs> he loves porn addicts. He loves adulterers. He loves smokers who damage their bodies. He even loves fornicators. He loves you and your favorite sin. He tolerates it. And I was, it really struck me this week as I was reflecting on this, is that every sermon I've ever heard about homosexuality goes, starts something like this. Today we're going to have a very difficult conversation about homosexuality. And I just want to start this off today by telling you that God loves gay people. You know, some of my best friends are gay people. I love gay people. Gay people need Jesus just like everyone else. And then we're going to go through some, some texts and we're going to look at what God has to say about homosexuality. Isn't that sort of how every, every conversation goes, something to that effect? But if, if I was going to do a sermon today on adultery, would I stand up here and say, you know what, I just want you to know, God loves adulterers. <laughs> Some of my best friends are adulterers. God loves porn addicts. Some of my best friends are porn addicts. You might be married to a porn addict. Okay? We don't do that. So there's some things in our... We have weird, inconsistent ways of thinking about sin. There's some sins that we're really up for grace. And then there's other sins we're like, throw the Bible at them and get it done with. Right? So I would like us to think about whatever your issue is today. Maybe you are an adulterer. Maybe you are a porn addict. The grace that we're going to talk about today that Jesus has for homosexuals applies to you too. Whatever it is the sin that you struggle with in your flesh, there's grace for that. And the Holy Spirit wants to work in your life on that issue. And you can be assured that many of the principles we're going to talk about today apply to all sins. This isn't just a gay issue. This is, maybe the question today could be, does Jesus still love me even though I'm a sinner? And I have this secret habitual sin that I struggle with, whether it's gossip or gluttony. So what I want us to consider is that there, we have very inconsistent ways of thinking about sin. We don't apply the same rules to all sins, but maybe we ought to. Gluttony is a sin in scripture. And yet some sins are more acceptable in conservative Christian culture than other sins. Many of us have no problem with overeating at a meal. And then we joke about it later. Oh, I ate too much. I don't have good self-control. Right? Reality check. The sin of gluttony is condemned as frequently in scripture as homosexuality. God has some things to say for people who can't control their flesh. And whether that's food or some other fleshly addiction, gluttony is a sin. And I've listed a few scriptures here. And I thought it was interesting how uh, the law connects disobedient children with gluttony. Gluttony is a sign that you are a disobedient, undisciplined child. Proverbs says, don't be friends with gluttonous people. It's, they are not people of quality character. Is this getting real yet, Americans? Where there's a fast food on every corner? Most of the context seems to be about food, yeah. Now, what's interesting is this reference in Proverbs. Now, granted, you have to know a little bit about the genre of Proverbs and, and wisdom literature. So sometimes, you know, the word pictures they use are extreme. But it basically says, if you are a glutton, put a knife to your neck. Because you're out of control. 
is kind of the, the thought. Well, if you slit your throat, you won't be able to eat. Exactly. <laughs> it's sort of like if you steal, you know, cut off your right hand, or if you have problems with lust, cut out your, cut out your eye. Yeah. So these, what I'm trying to get at here is that the, the, the Bible doesn't soft-pedal sin. But the, our, in our culture, we soft-pedal some sins. In the New Testament, it, it broadens it. So the, in the New Testament, the, the teaching is, look, if you have self-control issues, you need more Holy Spirit. I did a, a little video this, uh, last week on YouTube that if you want more Holy Spirit in your life, one of the things you need is more self-control in your life. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have control over your flesh in some area, that's an area that you need to invite the Holy Spirit into to begin to cultivate and grow the fruit of self-control. See, this is not a conversation just about homosexuality, and this is what I want you to understand. This is a conversation of how do we deal with our flesh? How do we deal with our lusts, our lusts for food, or our lusts for money, or our lusts for power, or our lusts for sex? It's about our flesh. Now, when we think about this from a ministry standpoint, do we ask obese pastors in their job interview whether they're food addicts? Would, would it prevent us from hiring them? We don't disallow overweight people from serving as elders or teachers or worship leaders. But they might have a problem with self-control. What we ought to do, I think, is work with people to support them as they work to overcome their sinful habits and control their urges and desires. This is what we do with other sins, right? Is we call on the transformational power of the Holy Spirit to help them say no to their flesh more frequently and say yes to the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is not unlike what the guidance is that people need who struggle with same-sex attraction. They need people to walk with them as they undergo a very difficult journey. And if you've ever tried to, if you do struggle with food and you've ever tried to lose weight, you know how hard it is to say no to your flesh. It is hard. And then at some point you stop dieting and you say, I've had enough of saying no to my flesh. Right? And it's a struggle. Our lack of clarity about the plank in our own eye, as we talked about a few weeks ago in our discussion on hypocrisy, is what causes many non-believers to call us hypocrites when it comes to LGBT issues. And the reason I've gone on and on and on about this issue of gluttony is because they will often say, if I'm a sinner, if you think I'm a sinner, Christian, you need to look at yourself first. The church is full of divorce. It's full of adultery. It's full of abusive people. And you do nothing about it. But your first words out of your mouth are to condemn me and what you think my problem is and my sin. Because you have decided that my sin is greater than your sin. And it's their angry way of telling us to get the plank out of our own eye. And so there's a sense in which we have to be very sober-minded about our own sin. First. And so when we hear this in the conversation, when we hear the words, our tendency is to first focus on all the words instead of to first have some circumspect thoughts about ourselves and our own sinfulness. And this guy is struggling with his sinfulness. And how can my journey... Oh, I just broke this. That's fabulous. Um, and, and, and how can my journey may be of some encouragement to him? But if I'm not busy killing my flesh, if I'm not busy in that journey myself, in my own sin area... The, the, the whole conversation is going to be focusing on his sin. And what they're telling us, the LGBT community, if you go on the message boards, any social media posts, one of the most common objections they have to Christianity is that we're hypocrites. 
And I want you to understand today what they mean by that. And this is what they mean, is that we are not circumspect about our own sin. Very few of us are on a journey of putting our own flesh to death. But we think that they're vile. All of us should know what our favorite sin is that we struggle with. And if you don't know what your favorite sin is, get into a conversation with the Lord about what that is. And what you are doing every day to put that to death and put it more and more under the power of the Holy Spirit. Because part of your testimony, if you're going to minister to somebody who self-identifies as same-sex attracted, who's a member of the LGBT community, they have to know that you are in the struggle just as much as they are. That you struggle with your own sinfulness. And that this is the paradigm that you do. And you're willing to walk with them through whatever it is that they want to go through. Okay? How do I follow Jesus as a same-sex attracted Christian? This is, the, this is the, the, the question that is behind this young man's quest. He wants to know. He says, I'm a Christian. He takes his faith seriously. In another part of the video that I edited out, he has gone to Christian high school. He has gone to Christian university for his undergrad and Christian uh, university for his graduate degree. So he, his faith means something to him. And he wants to know, how do I follow Jesus as a same-sex attracted Christian? What does this look like? Because he struggled with this his whole life, and he cannot get rid of these urges, these feelings. What does he do? This is the question that is before us of how do we advise somebody. I'm not talking about an atheist who just needs Jesus. I'm talking about somebody who has grown up in the church, has had a profession of faith, has had Christian upbringing with good Christian parents, and they are just sick of the struggle. What the, that is a much more difficult situation. So there's basically two Christian views that I want to get through today. And I think that some of this is going to surprise you. And it's very important for us to go through this. You might even want to add the word to that slide, evangelical Christian approaches. Because we're not going to talk today about liberal and conservative. And it would be really easy for you just to write off all the liberals. I'm talking about two positions that are being put forth by evangelical Christians, okay? So let's first talk about where we agree. Number one was mentioned in the video. All humans are created in the image of God and have inherent dignity, value, and worth. This is the very foundation of the concept of human rights. When we affirm equal rights, we treat everyone the same under the law. We don't treat people of a different race differently than we treat other people of a, a different race. We treat everybody the same under the law, rich, poor, men, women. Now, does it always happen in real life? No. But the idea of blind justice is that everyone is treated equally under the law. All right. So when Christians stood for the dignity of the Jews in World War II, when we provide shelter for the homeless, when we provide homes for the mentally dis diminished, when we adopt disabled children, when we fight against slavery and, the, and to protect women from forced marriage, we are engaging in the protection of human dignity, value, and worth because all humans everywhere in all times and all places are created in the image of God. This is the foundation of what the term human rights means. And so everyone has basic freedoms. So I want you to understand today that there is fundamental human dignity, value, and worth for anyone that is a human being. This is why we protect the unborn. This is why we have laws about euthanasia. This is all connected to the concept of human rights. So I am not for getting all the gay people together in a camp 
and gathering them together. I, I was going to play a clip today, but it just was too offensive for me to even play, of a pastor telling his congregation, I have a great idea of what we can do with all the gay people. We round them all up and we put them in a camp and then we just drop supplies in every once in a while. That is not a Christian value. And I want to be extremely clear about that. So should we accept everyone just the way they are? Absolutely, if we're talking about fundamental human rights. I am not for throwing gay people off buildings. I am not for gay concentration camps. I am not for gay torture. I am not for any of those things. And I want to be very clear to any member of the LGBT community that that is not a Christian value and there is no Christian that I know that holds to those views. And so if somebody has told you that that is what Christians believe, it's just not factually accurate. Yes, there are Weird people who name the name of Christ who say horrible things. But I'll tell you right now that 99% of the Christian, Christians in this country do not believe such heinous and atrocious things. So yeah, when I see this sign at a lot of protests, it says, I as a Christian, I am sorry for the judgmental actions of those of others. I feel mixed about this. Because there's a sense in which I agree with this. And there's another sense in which I don't. And that is the confusing state that we are in right now. There's a sense in which I, I am sorry that there's people on YouTube that say, we need to round up all the gay people and put them in a concentration camp. And they name the name of Jesus. I am sorry about that. But that's a very small, aberrant group of people. But that, that there is a perception among the LGBT community that it's almost all of us. We all have that secret fantasy about them. And we need to reassure them that we don't. We don't think that in our private thoughts. And I am sorry that there's, there's people that have said those things. Number two, all humans are fallen in our father Adam. We're all broken, as he says. Yes, we're all broken. We're all sinful. Where we also agree is that everyone is invited to believe in Jesus as their Savior. That invitation, we've been talking about that in church lately. The invitation goes out to everybody. Everyone's invited to the kingdom of God. Where we also agree with these people is that they hold scripture in high regard. This is from a tweet of a revisionist um, Christian evangelical. They would call themselves a progressive evangelical. He says, I love God with all my heart, and I have the utmost respect for God's word. That sounds like something we could tweet. Okay, view number one is what I'm going to call historic Christianity. Homosexuality is one of thousands of manifestations of the flesh, or manifestations of our nature in Adam. And it must be crucified like any other manifestation of the flesh, such as gluttony, gossip, or adultery. And that's how we think about it in the traditional historic Christian view. Now, the church has historically and universally interpreted scripture to affirm marriage is consisting of one man and one woman. And it is the position of this church in our doctrinal statement that marriage is one man and one woman. So we fall into the historic Christian view. This is our view here at, at the church. So we've been talking all year about the question of what is orthodox. What are the beliefs that make us Christian? What are those core fundamental things that unite all of us as Christians? Well, when it comes to this conversation, we would say, what is orthodox on this issue? Homosexual behavior and homosexual lust are sinful. And we would say that same-sex marriage is outside of orthodoxy, outside of that circle. This is where we, where we land. So... How do I follow Jesus as a same-sex attracted Christian according to the, the traditional historic Christian view? Well, repentance, the transformational work of the Holy Spirit, and the pursuit of holiness. Putting to death my flesh and allowing for the, the power of the Holy Spirit to rise up in me more and more every day. Now, the options here, if I'm same-sex attracted, are celibacy, which means I don't refrain from acting out on my urges, on my lusts. 
my desires. So it would be the same if I am a young man or a young woman and I want to fornicate, right? The ideal in this, in this viewpoint is we practice celibacy before marriage or outside of marriage. Are you with me? So it's the same thing. If you're same-sex attracted, the solution is the same, is how do I live and be an obedient follower of Jesus is celibacy. The second option is faithfulness in heterosexual marriage. Some people who are same-sex attracted still get married to someone of the opposite sex. It happens all the time. Some people think it will cure them. It probably won't. Without the transformational power of the Holy Spirit and putting to death the flesh a little bit more and more every day. If you think that marrying someone of the opposite sex is going to solve your same-sex attraction, that doesn't work. You still have to go through the, the motions of the transformation. Just as if you struggled with uh, porn addiction and you think getting married is going to solve your problem, it probably isn't going to work. You're probably going to just still have a porn addiction and be married and make your mate miserable. Okay, view number two. View number two is what I'm going to call the revisionist view. In this view, they would say... Uh, that biblical passages that seem to condemn homosexuality have either been mistranslated, misinterpreted, or misunderstood. So when rightly interpreted, they would say the Bible does not actually condemn same-sex attraction or monogamous gay marriage. And these advocates would say that, uh, yes, uh, fornication outside of marriage is still wrong, so in the circle of orthodoxy, they would say same-sex marriage is within the realm of orthodoxy. In fact, it's something we ought to advocate for as Christians because it represents a more excellent understanding of the scriptures. This is what you have to understand. That it's not from their point of view that they're trying to advocate for a position just to justify a lifestyle. They are trying to advocate for a position that they think is a more accurate interpretation of the scriptures. Okay, so how do I follow Christian, Jesus as a same-sex attracted Christian? I embrace my sexual orientation as being an inborn aspect of my identity. So when he says, this is designed by God, this is part of the revisionist position. He is chapter and verse quoting the revisionist position of how to understand himself, that this is how God has made him. So how do I follow Jesus? Here is uh, either celibacy or faithful monogamous same-sex marriage. Now, these people of this point of view often say, well, you know, it's easy to understand that we have misinterpreted many scriptures in the past, correct? We Americans used the Bible to support racism during the Civil War. The whole Southern church uh, has uh, difficult and deep questions that it must reflect on because it used the Bible to uh, provide a theological defense for slavery. And they would say, uh, now we know that there, a better interpretation is known and understood. Germans used the Bible to support the Holocaust. A major part of the justification of Hitler's regime was to come at it from within the context of German Lutheranism. These two examples are cited over and over again by the revisionists. So you need to understand they are not making a, an argument based on the justification of their sin. Like you were saying, Lois, in, here's what you were hearing is that he's justifying his sin. What he's saying is, no, I have a more excellent understanding of the scriptures than you do. This is what he's saying. I would beg to differ, but, but, but yes, <laughs> but that what I'm trying to point out is that these are the assumptions that we have in our minds. And, it, that, and he has assumptions, too, in his mind. OK, when we think about. LGBT ideology, and this is the only political statement I'm going to say, um, is that the secular conversation that our culture is having, the political conversation, is mostly around the issues of sociology and psychology. 
there's a desire to show that the sociology and the psychology of same-sex attraction is normal. And we're not going to go into that in these conversations, but that's a whole other avenue that you could potentially explore. What I'm focused on is the theology. The revisionist theology is an attempt to provide a biblical rationale for LGBT issues and positions. But it's the same goal, okay? The theological people and the secular uh, political conversations both have the same goal, and that is the normalization of homosexuality. That is the big goal of all of this. They want us in the culture and in the church to be persuaded that homosexual behavior is normal. And they are engaged in a systematic and I believe strategic um, effort to persuade us. We are undergoing a massive amount of persuasion in our culture about these issues. So let's talk for a minute about the, what I call the progressive evangelicals. You may not have heard of the progressive evangelicals before, but I hope you will not forget them because they are growing rapidly in influence. And in my opinion, they are more of a threat to Orthodox Christianity than liberalism because they're coming from within evangelicalism and they name the name of evangelical. You have probably heard of these mainline denominations, the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the United Methodists. These conversations about the acceptance of, of the revisionist theology have been in these denominations for 30 years. But it's only been within the last five to 10 years where we've started to see this come into evangelicalism, into conservative churches. And so I want to highlight just a few of these people. Uh, there is a young man named Matthew Vines. He's the founder of something called the Reformation Project. He has a video on YouTube that has like a million or so hits on it. This video he did when he was like 21 years old. He looks very young here. And um, he has now since published a book called God and the Gay Christian. There's nothing new about his arguments. These are the same arguments the revisionists have been putting forward since the 70s, but it's really couched for the emerging generation because he's in that generation. He's a young man who grew up in the church and began to study revisionist theology, and he put this book together for people his age. And it is a powerfully influential book. And the, the clip that we watched earlier, I mean, what you heard in that was chapter and verse right out of Matthew Vines' book. And this is where this is coming from. You know what a big advocate I am for always knowing the best arguments of the other side. This is, the, is a good argumentation for revisionist theology. And it will put you in a position where you're really going to have to figure out what you believe and why you believe it and what your stand is and which of these two views you're going to go down the path with. Other key progressive evangelicals are a gal named Julie Rogers, former chaplain at Wheaton College. When she was hired at Wheaton College, she told the people in her interview, I am a same-sex attracted woman, but I am celibate. And they hired her. And then about a year and a half ago, they fired her when she came out in uh, favor of gay marriage. You watch her videos and she just, she speaks all the evangelical lingo. She grew up in the church and she sounds like she's a youth camp speaker at a Christian camp. And she knows all the lingo. So if you really want to know what these people believe, I, I'm, as in, in fairness, I'm telling you who they are. So if you want to know. But I want to talk about Jennifer Hatmaker. How many of you have ever heard of the Women of Faith Tour? A lot, a lot of big names, yeah. Sheila Walsh yes. and Amy Grant and Sandy Patty. They've all been on the Women of Faith Tour. It's a big women's um, stadium event. So they've closed it down now about a year and a half ago. But uh, Jennifer Hatmaker got a big name on the Women of Faith Tour. She has a show on the Home and Garden Channel. 
uh, with her husband called My Big Family Re uh, Renovation. She's got a big social media following. Anyways, last October, she came out with an interview in uh, the religionnews.com news service. It's like a Christian newswire type of thing. And they did an interview with Jen Hatmaker. And it, I mean, Jen Hatmaker is so influential in people like my age and, and younger. I mean, her books are extremely mainstream and the focus of many women's Bible studies. This is not some fringe person. Even if you've never heard of her, trust me, she is a big name. And, huh? She's hilarious. Yes. She's a mom. She has like five kids and she has great insights and um, she has some really good things to say. Um, but she did this interview and um, basically she comes out in this interview and I've provided the link there for you so you can go read her words in context um, at your leisure. But basically she comes out in, in favor of gay marriage. And um, it took about 24 hours for Lifeway to stop selling her books. And then the divide started to happen. Are you pro-Jen Hatmaker or against Jen Hatmaker? And Jen Hatmaker represents these two views like nobody else I know. Because there's all these women that have been on both the traditional side and the revisionist side who love her. And now she picked a side. And so a lot of women have had to decide, do I still follow her? What do I think of her? So a couple days later, she provided some clarifying comments on her Facebook page. And I've included that link so you can read it all in context. It's very long. We would be here a long time if we read the whole thing. But I am going to just read this one section. We deeply, sincerely, with our minds and hearts, both engaged, we meaning she and her husband, during including perspectives, all along the spectrum, in deep discussions with people we trust and respect, with prayer and careful study and deliberation, moved into this space, we wrestled with and through scripture, not around it. Our view of the word is still very high, as it is for the hundreds of thousands of faithful believers who believe likewise. Okay, what is she claiming there? She's claiming that this is a more accurate reflection of what the scripture teaches. That scripture has been misunderstood and misinterpreted and mis misapplied. She says they wrestled with and through scripture, not around it. These are not what I want you to understand is these, they're not trying to justify their position. They're, they're, in their minds, they're studying scripture more deeply. Okay, then her husband, Brandon, provided some more comments the next day. And there again is the link for you to read again his comments are very long as we would for any topic seeking truth we did our best to look at each verse with fresh eyes we applied all the rules to faithfully and ethically interpret scripture we considered the type of literature the context in which it was written what other scriptures say say about it giving clues to god's intent and viewed each through the lens of the gospel the historical view is that scripture is clear on homosexuality. What we found is that it's not as simple as traditionally thought. Taught. taught. Thank you. It's not as simple as traditionally taught. So here's the thing. She's, they're coming straight against the traditional position. And they're saying the traditional position has misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied the scriptures. And what we need to do is have fresh eyes and go back and reinterpret the scriptures. The bottom line is we don't believe a committed, lifelong, monogamous, same-sex marriage violates anything seen in scripture about God's hopes for the marriage relationship. Now, I have some problems with this. <laughs> and hopefully you have been hanging around me long enough by now you know what some of them are the problems the key to the revisionist position is that I must embrace the idea that the church has got it wrong for 2,000 years and you all know because we've been talking in this class all year think back to October we talked about the Trinity. We talked about how 
the historical nature of the church preserved this beautiful doctrine of the Trinity for us. And we do not have the freedom to start reinterpreting the Bible with fresh eyes to reinterpret the Trinity, the atonement, the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do not have that freedom, my friends. We have been saying all year that we stand in a continuum of historical Christianity, right? You remember the lesson we did a few weeks ago about the history of the church and how we stand with these certain core truths of what it means to be a Christian. We can't just suddenly wake up one day and divorce ourselves from that and make pronouncements that all of these things are wrong. The revisionist position goes against both scripture and tradition. That's the big picture concept. The revisionist position is inadequate to explain the totality of scripture. We will look at that point next week. That will be our focus. We are going to go to all of these passages, and we will look at them in detail in light of these two paradigms. And you can make up your mind which one fits history and scripture. Uh, The revisionist position does not fit the historical criteria that we've been talking about all year for consideration within the realm of orthodoxy. It's not early, it's not sustained, and it's not universal. This is why I've been talking about this all year, is because this doesn't just apply to this controversy. This applies to every precious doctrine that is in our doctrinal statement at this church. We do not have the freedom, my friends, to redefine what it means to be a Christian. We don't have the freedom to redefine that circle. Now, do I wish sometimes that this was an easier conversation in my culture? Sure. But I, as an individual, don't have that freedom to go against the body that the Lord Jesus Christ himself instituted before he left this earth. And he sent his Holy Spirit. I don't have the right to redefine that. In my honest opinion, the revisionist position is the outcome of the Protestant tendency to constantly reinterpret Scripture. Remember our our old friend, verse, versus verse. If you squeeze the Bible hard enough, you can make it say almost anything. You can get some verses together, you can string them together and say something. This is where history helps us. As we now ask the question, and hopefully I've taught you to ask the question, how has this issue been dealt with in history? This provides a very helpful um, boundary to help us not run into the ditch theologically. So when we hear something new, the question in our mind is, what does scripture say? And then how has this been dealt with traditionally in the church? And it doesn't... uh, The Protestant tendency to reinvent theology instead of of giving preference to the way the text has been historically interpreted. So this brings us back to this lovely chart. You remember this from a few weeks ago? You know, we're we're way up here like on some remote branch of Swedish Baptists. Okay? It's not in there. I added it later. But we're rooted and grounded back here, and so we want to be in this flow. We don't want to all of a sudden get way up here on our tree and then like we're isolated and we're on this branch all by ourselves and then we're redefining major doctrines. When we go back to Brandon Hatmaker's comment, I underline this, we need to look at each first with fresh eyes. No, we don't. I am under no obligation to look at any verse with fresh eyes. I am under an obligation to have an understanding of the, 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 the doctrines of the church and what it has meant to be a Christian for 2,000 years. Now, I can have a deeper understanding of how to live them out. I can reflect about um, their meaningfulness for me and how they change my life and how they transform things. But I do not have the freedom to look at every verse in the Bible with fresh eyes. So can I be a Christian and gay? This is another question. Well, yeah. You can, I mean... Can I be a Christian and be a glutton? Can I be a Christian and be a porn addict? Can I be a Christian and... Yes, some people are Christians and some people are gay. This is a protest sign. You know, get over it. Well, there's a sense in which... The, the, yeah, this is, this is true. 
But this is a very superficial way of thinking about it. Some people, I think, do come to a genuine faith in Jesus through pro-gay churches. There's many testimonies about this on YouTube. You just go and look. And people do come to faith in Christ sometimes. Sometimes Jesus has ways of intervening in our lives in unusual and weird ways. People get saved from watching certain types of Christian television that I don't really care for. But some people get saved. Some people get saved by a street, a street evangelist. That's not my preference, but some people get saved. God does weird things. And if he wants to bring you to Christ, he'll, he'll figure it out. He'll do something. Some Christians leave evangelical churches like Calvary chapels and Baptist churches and other churches because they're wrestling with their same-sex attractions. They don't feel like there's a place for them there to be able to do it, so they go to a more gay-friendly church. That is kind of an understandable position to some degree. Because like I said earlier, if you have somebody in your church who's struggling with same-sex attraction, what ministry do they go to? Where, where do you direct them for other people who are in that struggle and mentors who can help guide them and, and have relationship with them and show them uh, and be with them as they're working on that? Can somebody be a practicing gay Christian? Oh, no, that's a different, different question altogether. A person can be in rebellion, they can be in disobedience, they can be backslidden, they can be carnal, they can be deceived, but they can still be a Christian, right? You could be a porn addict. You could be backslidden. A backslidden porn addict. You could be far from the Lord, but he's still calling you. I have a coworker. She lived with a man for 20 years. And she broke up with him like two weeks before she started working at the ministry where I work now. That whole time, she knew she was in sin. She was going to CCV. She knew she was living in sin, but she just couldn't break up with this guy. And then she finally, the Holy Spirit finally kept working with her and working with her and working with her. And she finally broke up with him and didn't go back. So you can be backslidden. You can be struggling. You can be struggling in your sin and still be a Christian. God is working with them. The Holy Spirit lives in them. Let's make a space in the, in the local church for that. So I have no interest in saying and making pronouncements about anyone's eternal destination. But I'm also very cautious about presuming on the grace of God. Because it says in the book of Hebrews that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And so I'm all for grace, but I'm also for sober-mindedness. Right? Right? So we want to have a space to strive for with people. We want to help them, equip them, be with them, but also calling them to repentance. Should I be practicing homosexual behavior? Well, no, God helping you. No, you shouldn't. Should I try to control my erotic thought life, my lusts? Yes, God helping you. But this applies to all of us. If you're married, don't commit adultery. If you're not married, don't fornicate. If you're married or not married, don't look at porn. That's lust. So, you know, the whole plank and speck thing, all right? A final point. This is just an observation. It seems like the key turning point in the life of most people that I have dialogued with who identify as a gay Christian, they often focus on the moment of self-acceptance. The moment they felt like they could finally accept themselves, they believed God accepted them and accepted their identity as a gay person. These people do not often talk about the high cost of being a disciple of Jesus. Their lingo, when they talk about their faith, is almost always revolving around self-acceptance, self-identity, um, self-proclamation. 
But don't we do that too? How often do we describe the Christian life as a putting to death of our own lusts and our own flesh? Not often. Not often. Not often enough. Isn't a large part of what it means to be a Christian disciple, though, involve dying to our favorite sin? And that is really my call today. Is that Again, this is not a conversation about just um, trying to focus on homosexuality. It is a call to all of us to begin that journey with the Holy Spirit to repent of our favorite sin and to be in that conversation with the Lord of how am I dying to my flesh every day, a little bit more, and giving more of my flesh and to the Holy Spirit and cultivating and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit.